Welcome to Heidi's Lemonade Stand, where we celebrate the triumphs of people who have overcome their own life's challenges and made our world better. People who have taken life's lemons and made lemonade. I am Heidi, your host. Thank you for joining me. Dave, welcome to the Lemonade Stand. I have been dying to talk to you again ever since I heard your story a couple of weeks ago. So thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. But let's start out by telling me three things about yourself. You're welcome, Heidi. Thank you for having me. I I have found a passion in helping to save lives and using my story and my experiences to help facilitate that change. I love uh, riding Harley Davidsons. I ride as often as I can. And now that the weather's getting nice, I'll ride even more. And I kind of, me and my buddies kind of buy them and collect them and sell them and buy them and sell them. And we have the, our favorites, but we've got about 15 or 16 Harleys in our garage right now between the three of us. The third thing, um, I love people and love to connect and network. What I've learned, you know, since uh, I got to Delancey Street 15, 16 years ago uh, is the circle of influence that you surround yourself, I can't put enough emphasis on it. The circle of influence that you surround yourself with determines uh, where you're going to go for the rest of your life. You just kind of look around the people you spend the most time with. And, you know, it's kind of cliche to say that because you hear people say it all the time, but there's nothing that, that is, that's so true. Who you spend your time with is who you're going to become. You know, they, I don't know, there was some saying about uh, hang around five, five millionaires and you'll become a millionaire, hang around five losers, you'll become a loser or something like that. It, I, it's, it's true. The people you spend your time with is, is who you're going to become most like. Yep. I love that you said that because that has something to do with your lemon to lemonade story. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to tell me about that. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing those things about yourself. You're welcome. My journey started when I was really young. I was the kind of kid that would come home from school and I would steal booze out of my dad's alcohol bottle. I'd replace it with water because I was sneaky and he'd never find out, right? And it didn't take long before he was coming home from work and he was taking a drink and quickly realized he wasn't getting the desired effect he was looking for and then realized I was. As you can imagine, that conversation didn't go well. And I don't know that when he was mad at me, if he was mad because I was drinking at such a young age or taking his alcohol, I'm not sure which, but anyway, I've never bothered to ask him, but it'll be fun sometime in the future to do so. But as you can imagine, the conversation didn't go well. And soon after that, I was smoking cigarettes, smoking pot. And between the ages of 13 and 14, I did my first line of cocaine. So here's a kid back in the eighties doing cocaine. And it was very expensive. So how do you support a habit? And I had a habit. I mean, I mean, instantly fell in love with it and became addicted. So nobody was safe. I was stealing from my mom and dad. I got into my dad's wallet, took the safe combination, got into the safe, stole money, uh, waited for neighbors to leave. When I was upstairs, I'd wait for them to pull out of the house and I'd jump over the back wall and you know, break into their homes. And I would manipulate people out of money. I'd make up stories, whatever I could do to continue to support my habit. It was a crazy way to grow up in uh, that kind of chaos. And I was the kind of kid that would go to school all through my high school years. I went to Cerritos High School in, uh, in California and I would have a vial of cocaine in my pocket, just a little glass vial and I'd be sitting in class. And when the teacher was up at the board, uh, English, math, science, whatever class it was, I'd pour that stuff out between the pages of my book and then I'd pull the big pen apart and I'd use the big pen as the straw and I'd just lean over and I'd snort coke in class. I did that all four years of high school. Now, there was a lot of people that tried to help counselors, doctors, therapists, mom and dad trying to get me help, putting me on restriction. A lot happened in that time, but that's basically how I was living my life. And somehow I managed to graduate high school because it really isn't hard to do. You know, graduating is not difficult to do. You don't have to put a lot of work in these days to graduate. 
or those days for that matter. But when I graduated from high school, I went from cocaine to methamphetamine. And when I started doing methamphetamine, um, I, I, I literally, the story I told myself was, holy cow, this is going to save my life because cocaine was killing me. I was doing so much. I'm snorting it. It was just ruining me as a, a physically and emotionally. And uh, doing meth, much cheaper, lasts a lot longer, better high, not as bad a come down. That's all the stuff that was going on in my head. Okay, I can do this. And I never set out to be a drug dealer. I don't know that anybody ever does. You know, they just, you know, at, at 16 or 17 going, all right, cool. I'm going to deal drugs for the rest of my life. That's not how it happened. Rather than stealing from people, I would buy a little bit, sell a little bit, buy a little bit, sell a little bit, buy an eight ball, which was, you know, whatever, 150 bucks, sell a little bit, just enough to support my habit. And I realized that I didn't, I didn't know that I had an entrepreneurial gene in my system, right? And then I'd buy some more, sell some, buy some more, sell some. Pretty soon I'm buying large quantities of meth and selling some. And now it's not just supporting my habit. I don't have to work. I'm making a lot of money. It, it times thousands, $15,000, $20,000 a day, moving pounds of methamphetamine every day in Orange County, California. And naturally, of course, I started getting arrested and going to, to jail. And I went to prison for the first time, and my first prison term was two years. I got out. I was out for uh, 59 days, went back to prison for five years. Got out for 60 days. So now at least I'm staying out longer. The first time was 59 days. Now it's 60, right? I'm, I'm, I'm out a little bit longer. Uh, then I, I got busted again, went back to prison for six years, and then got busted again and got another 10-year prison sentence. So it was a two-year sentence, a five-year sentence, a six-year sentence, and a 10-year sentence with very little time out in between. And of course, every time I got out of prison, the day I got out, I was on my way back. The day I got out, I was getting high. I was going back to the connect. I was picking up more dope. I was starting to sell again. And you know, it, things just continually got worse and worse. And pretty soon I'm making a lot of money and I've got weapons and loaded firearms and guns with cop killer bullets in it. The, the type of bullets that the top is chopped off and the darts coming through and they're Teflon coated just in case it, it ever came down to that. I'm glad that it didn't, but I was prepared in case it did. Could you imagine just what was going on in my head at that time? That I've got all these loaded weapons and all this cash and all these drugs and the lifestyle became the intoxicant even more than the drugs. The money, the power, the women, all of that stuff became the intoxicant. And when I say the, the power, I mean, it really was like that. When you've got a lot of drugs and you've got a lot of money, you've got a lot of power. People are willing to do anything. And women in that lifestyle, not normal women that have a good head on their shoulders, but women in that lifestyle, that's, that's part of the allure of the whole thing. So that was my life for a long time. And every time I went to prison, that's where I felt like I belonged. As soon as I got there, I was recognized from the street, the, the street cred, uh, the reputation. And I quickly realized, especially when I got to Delancey Street, that my reputation, can I, uh, I wanna be careful what language I use, my reputation wasn't worth shit. Can I say that? It just wasn't. And I had built my reputation on doing the wrong thing, but I had no character. And the difference was you build your reputation doing the wrong thing, you build your character doing the right thing. But I didn't realize that then. I was Dave DeRocher, drug dealer, all these things. And I was nothing. And when you're going to jail and you're going to prison and I thought I was about something, how can you be about something in jail or prison? But that's how bad it got. And I felt like this is where I belong. This is where I'm respected. This is where uh, I, I, I'm gonna live. You know, when I get out, I'll just, I'll just run amok again and I'll go back to prison where I'm comfortable. That became my life. I sometimes refer to it as hedonistic adaptation. I just got used to the, the lifestyle and got used to prison and I became okay with it. And that's a pretty sick thing to, to, to think. So after my fourth prison term, 
I'm in Huntington Beach, California. I did a TED talk that kind of explains uh, this, this, this episode. And I'm at a house and I'm looking out the window. I'm in a room and I'm, I'm weighing up drugs and I'm looking out the window and there's a helicopter hovering really high in the sky. Usually helicopters are floating around the town. They're just kind of patrolling the area. It's sitting super, super high. It's just sitting there way high in the sky. A couple hours go by, I'm getting ready to leave. I look out the window, that helicopter's still there. It's just sitting really high in the sky. And I thought, nah, it can't be for me. And I leave and I get in my car and, the, and I take off and the cops were everywhere. Now they didn't want to go in the house because they didn't have a warrant to go in, but they knew I was there. So they were waiting for me to leave. Cops were everywhere, four different agencies, Huntington Beach, uh, Police Department, Anaheim, Fountain Valley, and, uh, and parole. And I took them on a high-speed chase. I had told myself and many of my associates at the time that if I ever got pulled over again, I'm not stopping. Two-year prison term, five-year prison term, six-year prison term, 10-year prison term. I knew when I got busted again, I was going back to prison for the rest of my life. So I took off and I'm going down Magnolia in, uh, in Huntington Beach towards Atlantic. And for those who are listening, some of you may know that area. And I was going to make a left on Hamilton and I was going to throw all the dope and everything out the window over the bridge into the water. And if they go down there and find it, they'll have to prove that's what I threw. That would be my theory of defense. I'm already formulating all these things in my head. Well, I never made it to the bridge. I had total wanton disregard for public safety. I'm going through red lights. I'm literally displacing cars that are in my way. And when I got to Magnolia in Atlantic, I had a decision to make. There was a roadblock. The cops were all sitting at the intersection. I can stop and let them arrest me, or I can go through that roadblock and commit suicide by cop. And I was so desperate to not get busted and go back to jail for the rest of my life that I went right through that roadblock. And I literally hunkered down in my car, hoping they would just shoot and kill me, and then I'm done. I don't have to go back to prison. But they didn't do that. I made the left-hand turn. The cop closest to me did the pit maneuver, which is the pursuit intervention technique. They ran my vehicle, spun me out of control up on an embankment, left the car undrivable. It was a Chevy Blazer and it was no longer drivable. And the cops commenced to pulling me out of the vehicle at gunpoint and beating me to the, you know, the, what I refer to as the edge of my life. All I remember before I passed out was stop, stop, we're going to kill him. At Magnolia in Atlantic, when I made that left-hand turn, there's a strip mall there. And I got shoved up on the embankment up over the sidewalk and into the bushes. And, uh, there was too many people in the strip mall, so they just stopped beating me. And I won't make excuses for the police. They got me. I'm in handcuffs. They didn't have to do that. But, you know, I'm wondering if I was a police officer chasing the likes of me at that moment in time with my record and everything I've always done, I don't know how they couldn't do it. I, I, it's not doesn't make it right, but I'm not mad at them at all. I love law enforcement today, and that's a whole other story that we can talk about. I'm literally an honorary colonel today with the South Salt Lake Police Department. I'm the first one they've ever allowed to do that. Matter of fact, here's my badge, <laughs> right? Wow. Uh, it's the first time they've ever allowed somebody with a record to be an honorary colonel at a police department. So anyway, with all that notwithstanding, uh, I go to jail. And when I go to court the first time, my deal's 29 years, two, five, six, 10, 29. Over a few months, some of the ancillary charges had fallen off and it settled at 22 years. And I fought my case for a long time in the county jail. And every time I went to court, the judge said, 22 years, 22 years, that's it, Mr. Drosher, go back to prison for the rest of your life. But, you know, I was tired, broken, scared. And I realized, my God, I've lived in prison for a long time. Now I'm going to go back there and die. And I wrote Delancey Street a letter. Delancey Street is widely known in the country as kind of the gold standard of therapeutic communities. Minimum two-year stay, you can stay longer. No tax money from anywhere uh, at all, generate all of their own revenue through their social enterprises. 
I wrote them a letter. They interviewed me. They accepted me. And the judge told me no. And I'm like, God, you got to be kidding me. I'm in my cell going, Delancey Street thinks they can help me. It's designed specifically for people just like me. And the judge basically told me, uh, I need to be careful with the words I use. Um, no was his answer, right? Uh, so I go back to my, my cell because I wasn't really busy in my cell at night. I decide to write him a letter. Four pages long, legal pad, front and back. Never once did I argue with the fact that his assessment of me was wrong because he wasn't. He had me pegged for exactly who I was. But I said, Your Honor, what do you have to lose? Delancey Street's designed for guys like me. If you send me there and I get kicked out or I split, you can lock me up for the rest of my life. Or the next time you see me, it's because I'm coming back uh, in this room to say thank you for the opportunity. And about six weeks later, I went to court. And in California, I'm in a little phone booth, a metal phone booth that I've got ankle irons on, waist irons, handcuffs. And in the morning when you get up in Orange County Jail, it's like 3.30 when they get you all through the system to get onto the bus. Thinking I'm going to court, nothing's gonna change. You know, I'm still gonna be fighting my case. And I was hoping to get it down to something manageable like 15 years, two, five, six, 10, 15. Had he given me 15 years, I wouldn't be here today. My life would have been completely different, but he didn't. And what happened that day was amazing. I go to court. And Judge Pacheco says, Mr. Drosher, against my better judgment, I'm going to give you the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm going to send you to Delancey Street in spite of my better judgment. Uh, but when you get kicked out or you split, I've got you for the rest of your life. I said, Your Honor, where do I sign? So I signed my deal for 22 years, pled guilty to all of my charges. Now I'm locked in. If I split or I get kicked out, I'm going back to prison for that 22 years and whatever else new I might pick up while I'm out on the street. And uh, I went to Delancey Street had to stay two years to beat that 22 year prison sentence. And I stayed eight and a half years, two years to beat the sentence, six and a half more because I fell in love with the process. And for the first time in my life, I fell in love with me. And what I mean by that is I started to feel good about myself and you can't love other people and you can't really love anything until you learn to love you. And I never loved me. I didn't have anything to love for a long time. I was kind of a monster, if you will. And I don't, I don't mean a monster. I just mean that's the way I lived my life. That wasn't really who I was. It's just who I'd become. Does that make sense? So uh, I went to Delancey Street, stayed a long time. And the last five years that I was there, Mimi Silbert, the president of Delancey Street, asked me to manage the LA facility. Anywhere from 200 to 250 residents at any given time, 15 vocational training schools that generated all the revenue. So here's a guy that had been out of the workforce for a long time, drug dealer, gun running, just that guy uh, being asked to run a multi-million dollar organization and be in charge of that many lives. It was an incredible uh, opportunity and I took full advantage of it. Eight and a half years into Delancey Street, I decided I was ready to graduate. Met a gentleman by the name of Bob Burkich who owned Burkich Construction. He put me in the Teamsters Union. I had my commercial license. He got me a job at like $29 an hour. Again, out of the workforce, basically my entire life. Now I'm getting a job for $29 an hour. I'm like, holy cow, you gotta be kidding me. And I worked for him for a while and I loved going to work, but I hated my job. I'm in a hole, I'm digging holes. We're doing underground pipeline construction, but I was responsible and I was making money and I was supporting myself. Then I took advantage of an opportunity and I went up to North Dakota in the oil fields where they're fracking oil. Now it was the wild, wild west up there. It is completely ridiculous. What I refer to as quote unquote, stupid money. I go up there, I work 31 days in a row, make $17,000. Now, I only share that with you because here's a guy that never really had a job of any kind that wasn't fast food or something, uh, you know, when I was younger. And I stayed up there for five months, 17 grand the first month, 10, 12, 14, put a whole bunch of money in the bank and I'm having an affair with my checkbook. And I realized two things. 
Making money is fun, but saving lives was rewarding. I missed the people part. I missed Delancey Street. I missed helping get guys like me from where I was to where I had gotten. You know, work was great. I made a lot of money. I had some money in the bank legally, right? More money than I'd ever, they couldn't take it from me this time. And, uh, and I felt good about myself. And I came back to Southern California, left the Bakken, and then I threw a, it was a God shot, a serendipitous chain of events. Joseph Grenny, our founder, Tim Stay, our CEO, known each other for 20 years. Joseph Grenny wrote the book, The Influencer, which features Delancey Street in one of the chapters, particularly Mimi Silbert, because she's a, uh, an influencer and a change maker and helping with recidivism in uh, five different states in the country, primarily San Francisco and LA. They decided to go to, to San Francisco and go through the replication training. And then Joseph and Tim said, we want to start a replication of Delancey Street in Utah. And they reached out to Charlotte Baker, who had been there for 38 years, graduated before I did. And she said, well, I, I'm not, I can't help you, but I know somebody who can. And connected me to Joseph and Tim. Joseph and Tim flew to Los Angeles. We met at LA Live and uh, we went to Fleming's restaurant and we sat down at dinner and I said, don't ask me a damn question. Who in the heck are you? What's the genesis of thought behind this? What makes you think you can and why do you want to? Because they're both extremely successful businessmen. They're LDS. They don't have the same lifestyle. What is, what's, make me understand why you want to do this. And it took me about an hour to realize I was in the presence of great men. And at the end of that meeting, they said, are you willing to come to Utah to help us get this started? I said, not if you quit in six months when it gets hard. And that's how I got, that's my life story, basically, in a nutshell, got me to, to, to Delancey Street. And then from Delancey Street to the other side Academy, that was six years ago when we had the meeting. I'm now the executive director at the other side Academy. We have about 90 students here in Salt Lake City. We're residential. We have 30 in Denver. We have site two open. We are a minimum two and a half years long, minimum two and a half years long. We're 30 months. We're completely free. You walk through our front door, take a seat on our bench and we interview you. You start right then. You write us a letter from the county jail like I did at Delancey Street. We go to the jail, we interview you, you get a letter of acceptance you can take to your judge. He or she can then sentence you to, to TOSA rather than a lengthy prison sentence. Those are the two ways that you can find your way here. We take no money from the government, city, county, state, federal government, rich mommy and daddy, Medicaid, nothing. Long, free, hard, no government money. So people go, well then how the heck do you do it? We have our own social enterprises. Our moving company is the number one rated moving company in the entire state of Utah. Go online, look up the other side movers. There are literally hundreds of five-star reviews. 2018, we won the Ernst & Young Entrepreneurs of the Year. Now let that sink in for a second. Former criminals, former drug addicts, starting a moving company that's number one in its class that wins the Ernst & Young Entrepreneurs of the Year. This is the same population that used to take it out your window now they wrap it up, take it through your front door, deliver it to the other side every time. And ironically, here's the, here's the thing. People go, well, how do you do that? with the extra? If you called a moving company today, guess who you get? You get somebody that you're paying $60 an hour that's on their phone, having an inappropriate conversation with their drug addict girlfriend on the other end. They probably have something illegal in their pocket, a beer in the cooler, and they're hungover from the night before. Anybody listening to this show will ever go, that's not true. I knew somebody who wanted to be a mover their whole life. Nobody wants to be a mover. You fall into that position by default. And as soon as you get there for the interview, they check your pulse and they go, you're hired. That's it. That's who you get today. You get our students before they've changed. So our moving company earns a lion's share of our revenue. Then we have two very large thrift boutiques, roughly 30,000 square foot showrooms, one in Mill Creek 
one in uh, uh, Murray, and then we have a small construction company. Those three social enterprises generate all of our revenue. We are 100%, I want you to repeat after me, Heidi, profitable nonprofit. Profitable nonprofit. Does it sound like a bad word when you say it? (laughs) It's like, wait, how is this possible? I I mean, when was the last time you heard of a nonprofit that was profitable, that wasn't taking any money from the government? Right. In month 17 of our existence, we we generated all of our own uh, revenue and we were covering 100% of our operational costs. We still do today. If we weren't in growth mode, buying other properties, opening up other facilities, we wouldn't be reaching out to our donors asking for money if we were just going to stay here. But we've been completely self-sustaining since month 17. Wow. Uh, my student on average has been arrested over 25 times. I've got a small cadre of people who have never been arrested, small in one hand. So it's the frequent fire in and out of jail, 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 coming here and getting to learn to live in a community of healthy living until they learn to live in a community of healthy living. It's really that easy. So that's my story. That's how I got to Tosa. That's who we help. Now I'll open it up to you because I've been rambling for about 15 minutes. Fire away. (laughs) No, if I can, yeah, uh, wipe my tears. I love your story. It's so inspiring. And I appreciate you sharing that. I think the biggest thing is to understand what you're doing now for helping so many people. Because like you said, it is a place for these addicts or people that are struggling in and out of jail to come to live and to work and to be able to have a honest way of making money yeah, and being taken care of yeah, so that they don't have to go back to jail. Yeah. Here's the, I I always want to be careful how I lay this out because I think it offends people sometimes, but I can't do it any other way than to tell the truth. Yeah. In this country right now, we've been doing it for decades. We have, uh, when you think of a program, what's the average length of stay for most programs you're familiar with? Yeah, like a month. You get to stay for 30 days to get better. There's no science on the face of the planet. And I challenge anybody listening to your podcast, you find me the science that says 30 days is the magic number. It isn't. It actually started at 28 days. For many uh, years, 28 days was the average stay. And that's because 30, 40 years ago, when programs started popping up all over the place, the average American got two weeks of vacation, two weeks of sick pay. So they go away for 28 days while they sobered up. That's how it started. There is no science on the face of the planet that says day 30, day 60, or day 90 is the magic number. That's just what companies are willing to, uh, insurance companies are willing to pay for. Here's the sick part. Heidi, you get to a program. You sit in front of Dave, the counselor. I need help, Dave. My first question to you is, how much money do you have? And if you don't have any, go die. Now, they don't say go die, but if you don't have any money, normally they can't help you. Yeah, no help. So- Let's say if you're a drug addict, you don't have any money anyway, so you can't even take care of yourself. Somebody else has to foot the bill. You look to your right, you look to your left, mom and dad are there. They've already mortgaged their home, $140,000 in debt. They've sent you to six 30, 60, 90 day programs to no avail. They look at each other. They've got $4,000 left to their name. They hand it to me. I count it out and I go $4,000. Here's six penicillin. Hope that works. The amount of help that you get is contingent upon the amount of money you have. And here's the other sick part. On day 30, guess what they're asking you to do? You got to go or pay to stay longer. Yeah, you got to leave. And yeah. why, do you, why do you have to leave? The funding's run out. Yeah, no more money. What if you're not ready? It doesn't matter. You have to leave. And Heidi, no one's ready on day 30, on day 60, on day 90. And if we're two years long, we'll just use two years. Uh, no one's ready on day 730. The magic happens when you can stay in a mode of practicing, of doing the right thing every day 
for hundreds, if not thousands of days in a row until you recalibrate your moral compass and become a decent human being. Besides that, when I'm a drug addict and I'm out there ripping and roaring and committing crimes, I know it's wrong when I'm doing it. We want to make excuses for drug addicts in this country. We have been for years. Oh my God, they have a disease. It's not their fault. If you did such, let me tell you something. It is our fault. I don't care what anybody says. They're wrong. The reason why they buy into this model is because there's so much money in the medical piece of it. If you, if do bad things happen to you, Heidi? Yes. Do you choose heroin or meth to deal with it? Never. That's your choice. Yes. Drug addicts, when they start using again, people always go, if I started to use after 16 years of being clean, people would go, Dave, what the heck are you doing? Why'd you use? Well, I got triggered or this happened. I got my feelings hurt. I got mad. We give drug addicts excuses all the time. We say relapse is part of recovery. What do you, go ahead. Just keep giving drug addicts excuses to continue to use. You're going to continue to kill people. And we're feeding people this all day long that that's the method that works. It's not the method that works. Your 30, 60, 90 day models have a five to 7% success rate across the board. They don't want to talk about it, but they're getting the same people over and over and over and over again. And a hundred thousand dollars later, the person hasn't changed a bit. You can't change in 30 days. You can get clean and sober, but you can do that in jail and it's free. You can't change in 60 days. You can get clean and sober, but you can do that in jail and it's free. And besides that, if I'm a drug addict and a criminal and I'm going someplace that's $40,000 for a 90 day program, who's paying for it? Yeah. The community or the parents right. or the insurance. Yeah. And why should not they? them? Yeah, yeah. Not the drug addict. Why yeah. should someone pay for my recovery? Right. You, the taxpayer didn't break me. I did. So in therapeutic communities like Delancey street, like the other side Academy, like Habilitat and a few others in the country, we generate all of our own revenue so we can be self-sustaining. We have skin in the game. We're taking care of ourselves. That piece in and of itself is critical going forward as you're learning to be self-sustaining because most programs you're sitting around with your hat on crooked, your pants are sagging. You're on your cell phone, talking to your toxic significant other on the street. You're just waiting for day 30 or day 60 to come around to go back out there and do the same thing again. Right. It's completely different here. We're going to make you own your behaviors. And we don't even talk about drugs at the other side Academy. It's about behaviors because Heidi drug addicts are liars. If you ever meet a drug addict that doesn't tell lies, he's not a drug addict. We're liars. We're cheaters. We're thieves. We steal for our habit one way or the other. We're manipulating. We're violent sometimes physically and or emotionally. We're all of those things. And if you take drugs away and they get clean and sober, what remains? Yeah, you're still those things. You're still those things. Until you change those behaviors, you'll go back to drugs every time. Right. And some doctors, counselors, and therapists want to argue that. But most doctors, counselors, and therapists have never walked a mile in our shoes. They've never been drug addicts. They've never lived on the street. They've never been to jail. And they've never been to prison. And the best way that I can make people understand that concept is here's a guy. I'm a guy. And I'm delivering your child. I take the baby. I cut the umbilical cord. I give the baby its first breath. And I can do that a thousand times and never tell you what it's like to give birth. I can tell you what I think it's like. I can tell you what it feels like, what it looks like, but I can never tell a mom what it's like. So doctors, counselors, and therapists that go to school to help this population, but have never lived it, only know what they think they know. And some people get offended when I say that because they went to school and they've got a degree, but really there's no experiential overlap. And when Dave's opining to some counselor about his problem, I can literally see them thumbing through the pages of their book going, well, I'm supposed to respond with, oh, there it is, page 78, 
Subsection C, when David says this, I respond with, that's how it feels. But when you come to Tosa or the other side Academy, there's no doctors, no therapists, nothing. It's a community of healthy living where you're being held accountable by your peers 100% of the time, being called on your behaviors by your peers, sometimes in very colorful vernacular, because that's what it takes. Sometimes you have to raise your voice to the level of the transgression. But oftentimes on the street, you have doctors and counselors going, oh my God, you can't yell at them. They're drug addicts. Oh no, be, oh, it's okay. it's okay, poor little drug addict. Keep doing that. And you wonder why the problem persists. Wow. So you guys all live together and take care of each other and work together without yep. any medication and therapists. No medication, no therapist. And if you stay for two and a half years, we have an 82% success rate. What that success rate is, is DCE, drug-free, crime-free, and employed. 100% of my students upon graduation have a job. We have so many. Think about that for a minute with drug addicts. That's huge. 100% of them. And you are welcome to come, and any of the listeners are welcome to come to Tosa and talk to any of my students. You can ask them any questions you want. 100% of them have a full-time job on day one of their graduation. There are so many organizations that are hiring. Hughes General Contractors, Nicholas and Company, Ralph Smith Trucking, Tabitha Wave, uh, uh, Midwest Flooring and Cabinetry, just to name a few. I've got other ones here where people are calling all the time going, Dave, we need some more of your graduates. Do you have any more graduates? Because they're such good people when they graduate. Uh, if you stay three years or longer, it's 92%. Those students who have been with us for four years or longer, because you can stay like I did in Delancey Street for eight and a half years. If you stay four years or longer, it's 100%. The farther you get away from the old lifestyle, if you're away from the old lifestyle for one day, still has its talons in you. Two days, still has. Two months, it's still, it's still touching you. The farther you get that lifestyle behind you, the harder it is to go back to. And people don't understand that concept, or they do, but they still want to still want to sell the 30, 60, 90 day model. Um, you stay here for four years or five years, or in my case, Delancey Street for eight years, your entire circle of influence has changed. Everybody you know is gone from your past. You have a whole new group of people to lean into. And that, that really is the magic sauce. When you're only gone for 30 days, all your old associates, same playground, same playmates. You're in most programs. They let you have your phone. You're still calling all of your old associates. Nothing's changing. Exactly. But they want to keep selling that 30, 60, 90-day model. Wow. It's, it's insane yeah. what we're doing in this country. We are literally killing more people than we're helping because then on day 30 or day 60, when they go back out, they start using heroin again. They pick up right where they left off. Boom, dead. Gosh. And they call it a relapse. It wasn't a relapse. We facilitated it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a relapse. They never, they never, they never took a break. It. Yeah. They took a break. You got Heidi, you nailed it. That's exactly yeah. it. So that's yeah. the difference between us and other models. And they don't like hearing that. And I don't care that they don't like hearing it. I'm going to continue to profess it because it's the truth. Yes. And that was my thought too, when you were talking about it, I thought, wow, all their friends and associates and even family and maybe spouses or something will be gone after so many years. They're not going to wait around for them. It's like they're in jail in a way. And that's the point. That's, that's the point, what right? we want Build a is for them of people. to find new people that are better influences and better in their lives. And maybe mom and dad were great for them. And maybe they will be there at the end, you know, in, in several years and, or good family members that are supportive yep. that will be that when they get out. But in the meantime, all those toxic people that they shouldn't be with. So this is similar to jail as far as you're away from everyone, you know, for years. Like you can't be in contact with 
you know, old associates, right? Yeah. You're not going to have any contact with boyfriends, girlfriends, husband, wives. And here's the reason why. And again, people will argue this, but let me lay it out the way it is. If you're a drug addict and a criminal, who are you dating? Yeah. Uh, they're drug addicts and criminals. So, sure. the rela- yeah. so you're not in a relationship. It's already toxic. Right. And here's what drug addicts do. I don't know if you can see me, but I have a pen. We're going to call this a syringe and I'm going to put it in my arm. Right. And then I'm going to hand it to my girlfriend and go, I love you. Yeah. This is what drug addicts do. We'll put something in our body that could kill us. We'll hand it to the person we claim we love and it could kill them. And we call that a relationship. And if you're a drug addict and a criminal, that's probably who you're dating. But if I'm a drug addict and a criminal, and I'm going to assume you're not, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're dating me, Heidi, you're crazier than me. Exactly. Yeah. Open, I do. Anybody <laughs> that dates us in the heat of our lifestyle uh, needs far more help than we do. That does not say much for him or her that's dating him or her that's doing it. Right. And people, again, don't want to own that piece. They think they're in love because that's how it feels. But love isn't a feeling. Love isn't a word. It is an action. And if you're putting a uh, heroin in your body and then handing it to the person you say you love, I would hate to see how you treat people you hate. Right. So we're going to talk about relationships here, about the importance of relationships, how, how the difference between the old relationships and the new ones that you're building, and the two foundational things that we do that are so critical, two of them, love right, and truth. Mm. And I can't emphasize it enough. One without the other doesn't work. If all you do is love somebody, that's permission for them to continue to do what they're doing. If you don't love them and all you do is hammer them with the truth, that's mean. If you have both combined love and truth and the help you're giving somebody is coming from a place of love, that's the magic sauce. Their secret sauce. That's the magic of the program is we love our students. They love staff. And my staff, we live on property. We're not like other programs where you punch in at eight o'clock and you punch out at five o'clock and you go home, you're not bought in. If you want to work for TOSA and I feel like you have what it takes, you live on property. When we have 90 students here, they might be 40 years old chronologically, they're 15 emotionally. All of the staff members are like parents. We are raising them through the process. You don't get to go home. We live here. That's why the success rate is so high because we're so different than every other program. I can see that so much. And it's interesting that I love how you call them students too. That's the best name ever. But um, it's interesting that you just have the 90. You'd think there would be so many more people that need this opportunity, needs this service. The problem is drug addicts inherently are always looking for the easy way out. If you're in jail, you're writing 30 programs and you're looking for the shortest one because all you're trying to do is okay. get out of jail. Get out of jail to get back to life. Of yeah. course. And if you're not in jail, you're not looking to go to a two and a half year program. You're looking for the 30 day program. And mo- my students on average have been arrested 25 times and on average have been to six 30, 60, 90 day models. This population's already been to all those. And then finally, when they come here, realize those don't work. They don't generally very often. Now, there are some people that they work for, but not, not by and large, they don't work very well. You know, that's the big thing is that you, you would think there'd be a lot more people, but two and a half years is, seems like a long time to drug addicts. And we're always looking for the easy way out. And it's something that loved ones, parents can talk to you about to be able to get yep. their yep. loved one in there. And you know, what's funny when you bring up families, families are 100% the problem. Yeah. They either, my students- They enable them or oh, they, yeah. Yeah. They either got that. high with mom and dad got high with dad. 
uh, it's some, it's on some level, we're getting high, shooting meth, doing heroin, drinking at 16, 17, 18 years old because mom and dad were drug addicts. So that relationship's toxic. Or mom and dad are LDS. And they see all people through God's eyes and they see them in Sunday school clothes and don't realize. And then every time the drug addict comes home and knocks on the door, they let them in. Knocks on the door, they let them in. Knocks on the door, they let them in. Go to jail, come home. Go to jail, come home. Go to program, come home. Go to pro now you're 32 and your 32-year-old son or daughter is still knocking on the door and you're letting them in. You're killing them. When my mom and dad finally slammed the door after four prison terms and told me to get lost, we're done with you. And I'm sitting in my cell writing the judge to go to Delancey Street. I realized I lost my family. They should have cut me off a long time ago. And every time I got out of prison, guess where I went? Home. Guess what I brought into their house? Drugs. I didn't give a shit about mom and dad. I didn't. I didn't know how to. How could I? I didn't care about me. Yeah. So parents need to realize, cut them off. When we become jobless, homeless, carless, moneyless, and no place to go, guess what we're going to do? That's we're going to reach out and for help yeah. from places that can actually help us. Many of my students at 40 years old are still attached at the umbilical cord to the parents. And I say this tongue in cheek, and I don't want to sound abrasive, but oftentimes I ask them, how would you do your stay if your parents were dead? Hmm. How would you do it? And they look at me and they think about it. I go, you've gone to, you've been to jail 27 times. Every time you get out, where do you go? Mom and dads, mom and dads, mom and dads. That's not working. It hasn't and it won't. If mom and dad perished in a car accident, how would you do your stay differently? Wow, Dave, I never thought about that. You would do things differently because you'd have to learn to stand on your own two feet and become self-sufficient. Right now, you know the safety net sitting on the other side of that door. And if you split today, tomorrow, two months from now, or you go out there and you start using again, yeah. go knock on mommy and daddy's door and they're going to continue to kill you. Hmm. It's the truth. Wow. And some people say, oh, God, that's cruel. It's not cruel. That's, that's cruel. how you help us. Yeah. Yeah. Hold us accountable. Don't let us manipulate you. Don't enable us. Force us to get help. And as long as I can go home to mom and dad, I don't need help. I've got mom and dad. Wow. It's just crazy, the whole dynamic. I can see that. Wow. This is the perfect lemon to lemonade. This is just <laughs> what it's all about. This is what your, what your story is and what you're doing for other people is just taking something really not cool and making it into an amazing thing. And you're no. turning these lives into amazing lives that they can now go out and be contributing members of society. And, that's, and what we want. That's, that's all we are, is we are a practice ground for real life. I tell yeah. people all the time, including my students, this address, we are a micro community getting you ready for the macro community. Yes. That's all we are, is every day you're going to get up, you're going to go to work, you're going to tell the truth, you're going to have a good attitude, you're going to come home, you're going to take care of your responsibilities, you're going to go to bed, you're going to get up the next morning, go to breakfast, go to work, have a good attitude, tell the truth, come home, take care of your responsibilities, go to bed. And you're going to do it for hundreds, if not thousands of days in a row until you recalibrate your moral compass and become the 2.0 version of yourself. You can't do that in a 30, 60, 90 day model. I don't care what anybody says. You're not going to learn those things in such a short period of time. Here, work becomes the Petri dish and you've got skin in the game. The money we generate comes back into the facility. So you are paying it forward, both for yourself and for those who are coming after you. And what, what is there a better balm for our wounds? Right. than paying it forward and helping others.
that is the balm for our wounds. Yeah. Again, you can't do that in other places because somebody else is paying for your recovery. That's it. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to know that you are doing something for someone else. I think there's that, that in all of our brains, even the drug addicts of theirs, that like desire to do service and pay it forward and help others. And I love how they can have this little community where they can learn that and really make that happen to improve their lives in that sense too. Sounds like it's an amazing program, Dave. Oh my gosh. You are amazing. I love just your light and your inspiration and just your story and what you've been through. Like, I'm just in awe. Like I just, I just admire you so much and what you've done and how far you've come and what you're doing to help so many others. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your show and for you to reach out. But I was like, I need his story because it's exactly what I want people to, first of all, know about. I think more people need to know this is an option. And I think that we need to be able to support and and know more of what's available and what what's happening. Like, I think we need to use the movers. I think we need to go to the thrift shop. I think we need to know things like this to be able to support each other too. So use our moving company. If you use our moving company, you'll move when you don't need to just for the experience. <laughs> it's that, that. you'll, you'll move it. and you'll go whole, you'll actually enjoy the experience. When was oh, the last time it. you moved and enjoyed the experience? I no. promise you, if you use our movers, you're going to want, you're going to like six months later, you're going to go, honey, let's move again. That was fun. Oh my God. <laughs> I love that. That would be amazing. Okay. Our- how about this? We need to move all the furniture out to put new carpet in. Would you come and do that and then move it we all back you. in? Yep. Okay. We got you. Okay. That's great. And if you go to our thrift stores. When you think thrift store, you think DI Goodwill. Right. You go in and you're like, uh, it doesn't smell very good in here. <laughs> Stuff all over the floor. If right. you go into our thrift boutiques, you'll turn around, you'll walk back outside. You'll look at the signage to make sure you didn't walk into Nordstrom's. They're that nice. Immediate nice. people there to assist you. What are you looking for? Can we help you? Show you what it's amazing. It's unlike any experience you've ever had. Our construction it. company, flat concrete work, bathroom remodels, kitchen remodels, basement uh, build outs, you name it, we do it. The hands down, the best work. And when we say we're going to be there and we're going to be done by a certain date, we are. Love it. So how would people get in contact with this, you know, to be able to use these things? I'll say it right now. Theothersideacademy.com. Okay. There's a website. They can go to our website. There's a a few, few prompts and they can start to leave messages. They can call me at 714-293-8803. That's my cell. They can email me at Dave at the other side Academy, all one word, Dave at the other side Academy.com. I'll return everybody's email. Usually same day. And if you need the moving company, you want to know more about the thrift store, you know somebody who needs help, which is the most important part, family member, brother, sister, friend, by extension, directly, whatever it is, uh, happy to talk to that person over the phone, pre-screen them. If they seem like they're ready, they can come in for an interview. If they're in jail, they can write us. Let's save more lives, Heidi. Oh, sounds good to me. I love it. it. Love it. Thank you so much for your time and for your inspiration. I just truly appreciate it. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. You're still here? Well, then click on the next episode to get more lemonade. One more day,